It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 217 for November 7th, 2010. Recorded November 5th. Windows Explorer is the application that allows you to explore the drive or drives that are attached to your computer. That's probably why they call it Explorer. Click it, it opens. Click a drive and see its contents. Click a file, something happens. The something might be that a program runs or a file opens. This is all pretty basic stuff. So why would anybody be so dumb as to spend money on a program to replace it? Despite the fact that several people had told me they wouldn't be without PowerDesk, I stuck with Windows Explorer. Over the years, I've learned how to live with its single-panel limitations by opening a second copy as needed, but now I have seen the light. Although it's true that PowerDesk, which is now at version 8, is a replacement for the Windows Explorer, that's rather like saying that the QE2 is a replacement for a fishing boat or that a 15 million candle power searchlight is a replacement for the flashlight you keep in your glove box, or that the Library of Congress is a replacement for a small town's bookmobile. Well, you get the idea. PowerDesk 8 certainly replaces the Windows Explorer, and it can display the contents of two locations simultaneously, side by side, or one over the other. I knew it could do that. Several Explorer replacements can do things like that. What I didn't know was what else it can do. Windows Explorer now lets you open a compressed zip file and access the files inside without using a program such as 7-Zip. PowerDesk does that too, but it also allows you to compress and decompress files and folders. Windows Explorer lets you transfer files from one disk to another. PowerDesk, of course, does that, but it also lets you transfer files over the Internet using PowerDesk FTP. Okay, in all honesty, Windows Explorer can make an FTP connection too, but you can still see just one location at a time, and Windows Explorer doesn't handle secure FTP connections as PowerDesk does. Windows Explorer can display previews of many graphics files without loading a separate viewer. PowerDesk does that for more than 150 file formats. Windows Explorer allows you to open a command line window if particularly under Windows 7, you remember the right magic keystrokes. PowerDesk does that, and all you have to remember is to right-click the drive or directory or choose the command prompt item from a menu. Windows Explorer allows you to keep two directories synchronized if you don't mind manually examining the timestamps, deciding which directory has the newer version of a file, and then copying all of the individual files one way or the other. PowerDesk can do all the timestamp examining and synchronize the directories for you. Windows Explorer will color-code compressed and encrypted files. PowerDesk does that too, but it allows you to specify the colors you want to use for encrypted and compressed files and for applications, documents, images, and system files. Windows Explorer doesn't come with 350 pages of documentation. PowerDesk does, but you can begin using it right away without ever examining the help file and then learn the new features at your leisure. You may have concluded and rightly, that I am impressed. PowerDesk can show two directories simultaneously, and if you select an image, an audio file, or a video file, the file will be displayed or played 
in the File Viewer panel. The file renaming option included with PowerDesk is far from perfect, but the Windows Explorer doesn't make automated renaming possible at all. I selected a large number of files and told PowerDesk to rename them. The dialog is somewhat limited, and whatever base file name you give the program is what the first file is named. Then all of the subsequent files have a parenthesis and a number. So the developers really should take a look at some of the other file renaming utilities and adopt the ability to add prefixes and suffixes. The first file should be numbered 0 or 1 instead of being left blank. And I'd really like to lose those parentheses and make it possible for the file renamer to pad numbers to a length specified by the user. But still, it's a lot better than what the basic Windows Explorer can do. Windows Explorer can't convert image files from one format to another. PowerDesk can, and you can even convert images from JPEG to GIF, although I can't think of a good reason to want to do that. If you wonder which files on your computer use the largest amount of space, PowerDesk's Size Manager utility will show you. Although PowerDesk doesn't replace a full-featured FTP client such as FileZilla, it does allow you to copy files easily from a remote site to any of your local drives. And you can launch programs from within PowerDesk. This seems to be an unneeded feature, and I disabled the launch bar and then combined the drive bar and edited toolbar and the shortened command bar all into one to save screen real estate. And that's another thing. You can modify the interface quite a bit. On the TechBiter Worldwide website, you'll see how I set up the interface with combined drive tool and command bars and with the launch bar disabled. Images will appear in the preview panel, which can be displayed on the right or on the bottom, or even converted to a floating window. And something else that the Windows Explorer can't do is directly play audio or video files. So with all this power, yes, PowerDesk really does require a 368-page manual. Bottom line for PowerDesk 8, four cats, PowerDesk beats Explorer hands down. Lots of extra features and no serious shortcomings make PowerDesk an exceptional replacement for the Windows Explorer. It's a little pricey, but if you spend a lot of time doing the tasks that PowerDesk does, it's going to be an intelligent purchase. Check the TechBiter Worldwide website for a link to the PowerDesk website. My wife sent an instant message to me this week at the office saying that she'd opened a message from Chase Bank, and she thought that she might have done something stupid. Well, she hadn't done anything stupid, but Chase Bank had. The message called my wife by name, but not her name, and it cited the last four digits of a credit card number, but not the last four digits of her credit card number, or mine for that matter. What happened, you might be wondering, and why? I certainly was. So let's cut to the chase, so to speak. According to Tom Kelly, Chase Media Relations, and I quote, we recognized the issue on Tuesday and quickly sent follow-up emails to affected customers. When I first contacted Tom, though, he wasn't aware of the problem, even though my wife and I had both reported it to Chase hours earlier. I had received a similar message with another cardholder's name and card information. The problem, according to Kelly, occurred because of a problem with a marketing file. I asked how many people were affected, and he told me that they weren't sharing the number of emails involved. When my wife first notified me of the message, I simply thought it was a basic phishing attempt. 
but I asked her to forward the message, and I found that the domain of origin, which is pretty easy to forge, was registered to Chase. That's not definitive, though. The origin's IP address, which is difficult to forge, was also registered to Chase. When I received my own message and noticed that it had been sent to an address used only by Chase Bank to communicate with me, it was clear that the wrong message, with the wrong name and the wrong debit card information, had been sent to my address. So I called Chase Bank and explained the situation, was told that I should forward the message to the abuse desk at Chase. Clearly, the young lady who took my call either wasn't listening or didn't understand terms such as domain name and IP address when I explained that I had checked the domain name and I had checked the IP address and the message had come to a special address that I use only for Chase Bank. But after listening to a second explanation, she said that she would report the issue to her supervisor and that someone would contact me. That was Tuesday, November 2nd. I am still waiting for that call. Now, in all fairness to Chase Bank, this wasn't a security issue. At most, I have the name of a Chase debit card holder and the final four digits of his card number. There's not much that anyone could do with that information. But the system that knows the cardholder's name and the final four digits of the card certainly knows a lot more. If Chase can accidentally send messages containing another user's information to tens or hundreds or thousands or hundreds of thousands of users, what's to keep the system from vomiting up all of my information and accidentally sending it to someone that I'd prefer didn't have it? And it's not just Chase. All financial institutions need to review the processes they use and find ways not to share data inadvertently and inappropriately. In addition, financial institutions need to hire people who can recognize when someone who understands domain names and IP addresses is on the phone with a legitimate problem. Just brushing off people who have valid information about your system's security isn't intelligent. And, by the way, Chase sent a follow-up message Thursday evening that said, and I quote, We determined that we have experienced a processing error and the email was not intended for you. By most standards, that was too little, and certainly far too late. The trouble with smart people is that sometimes they're so far ahead of the curve that anyone of average intelligence will consider them to be quite insane. Ray Ozzy might be in that predicament right now. Ozzy, who is Microsoft's retiring chief software architect, says that PCs are dead. The office suite is dead, and by extrapolation, unless something changes, Microsoft is dead. Wow. Ozzy, who by any definition is a very smart guy, has been with Microsoft for five years. Immediately after joining Microsoft, Ozzy wrote a blog post called The Internet Services Disruption, and that roiled the waters quite a bit. Now he's written Dawn of a New Day. You'll find some quotes from that post on the TechBiter Worldwide website, along with a link to the full blog post. A little background on Ozzy. Before heading west to Microsoft, he was with Lotus Development Corporation. He was the lead developer of the company's flagship Notes software. Later, he launched Groove Networks, the Internet-based suite of collaboration tools. Microsoft acquired Groove in 2005 and then promptly mismanaged it by failing to support it on 64-bit platforms. In essence, Aussie today is saying that desktop computing is dead and the cloud is the future. I quote, 
We're moving toward a world of, one, cloud-based continuous services that connect us all and do our bidding, and two, appliance-like connected devices enabling us to interact with those cloud-based services. So I see the forecast as partly cloudy. We have short memories, and much of what we do tends to be cyclical. School boards start classes at 9 instead of 8 because students do better when classes start later. But then a decade after that change, the same school board votes to start classes at 7.30 instead of 9 because students do better when classes start earlier. The same approach is evident in other parts of our lives, and this in-the-cloud stuff is ironic. In the 1970s, I would carry a card deck to a computer and hand it over to an operator for processing. I'd come back several minutes or hours later to get the results. In the early 1980s, I had a DEC VT100 terminal on my desk. The word processor, and actually everything else, resided on a DEC PDP-1170 in a remote room. In the mid-1980s, we received personal computers, and I was able to do some of my work on the PC, but the important stuff was still back in the computer room. The disks on our standalone computers grew larger, processors became faster, and operating systems became more capable. Today, I have on my desk at home several million dollars worth of computing power, at least if you'd use 1980s prices. So now, after 25 years of being told and completely agreeing that distributed computing is faster and easier to use, along comes cloud computing. In-the-cloud computing will allow me to store files remotely and hope they're available when I need them. It will allow me to use programs with severely limited feature sets. And I'll be able to enjoy the leisurely pace that these cloud-based applications run at. Now, I don't doubt that Ozzy is right about many of the advantages of cloud-based computing. But until the infrastructure is available to support fast and reliable communications between where you are and where the cloud is, it's a non-starter. But you know what? Maybe that's what Ray Ozzy's trying to tell us after all. Occasionally, I receive a message from someone who claims to be in business, but the sender's address is something at Yahoo or Hotmail. Perception is important. If you're in business... A domain name is part of what people use to form their impression of you. If you're shopping for a car, you'll probably have a much different opinion of the dealership if, instead of joe.dealer at bigdealership.com, the message comes from bigdealer at gmail.com, or even worse, bigdealer at aol.com. Why is aol.com even worse? Well, it's worse because of AOL's sketchy reputation as an Internet service provider, started back when it first began introducing users to the Internet. Did a bad job of it, and a lot of people remember that. My Internet service provider includes an email address, as does probably every Internet service provider. I never use it. I have three Gmail accounts that I use for archiving messages and to provide access to current and archived messages if I need to use a public computer. But I would never consider any of these to be a primary account, and I rarely send mail from any of them. When I write to a reader, a hardware company, or a software company in my role as the TechBiter guy, I use a TechBiter.com address. When I write personally, I use a Blinn.com address. Being your own domain has several advantages, and perception is just one of them. 
And it's not even very expensive. Registering a domain name costs around $10 per year for the common top-level domains such as com, org, biz, and info. Certain other top-level domains cost considerably more. A hosting account that includes space for both a website and email, usually with an unlimited number of addresses, can cost as little as $40 a year. And you can find email-only accounts for about $20 a year if you really don't need a website. I think that's a bad idea, though. An address such as youatyourdomain.com tells me that you're really in business. An address such as youatwowway.com or youatverizon.com suggests you're probably just playing around. In short circuits, this week YouTube took down several videos by Anwar al-Awaki, the American-born cleric who now lives in Yemen. Al-Awaki's videos have been used to inspire violence against targets in the United States and Europe. The cleric works with Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, the group that shipped explosive packages to locations in the United States in what is seen as a series of tests for future attacks. U.S. and U.K. officials have been pressuring YouTube to take down the videos and stepped up that pressure following the discovery of bombs and packages shipped to the U.S., Congressman Anthony Weiner of New York provided YouTube with a list of hundreds of videos featuring Alawaki, and YouTube's Victoria Grant says the company has removed videos that violated YouTube's guidelines forbidding display of dangerous or illegal activities. As examples of those, she cited bomb-making, hate speech, and incitement to commit violent acts. YouTube also prohibits videos from anyone who has been designated as a member of a foreign terrorist organization. Okay, I've got a question here. If you're a member of a domestic terror organization, your videos are okay? Grand says that Google tries to differentiate between videos that are religious in nature but without a call to violence and videos that cross the line and attempt to incite violence. The religious videos will remain. Those that incite violence will be removed. I, of course, have an opinion on this. This is a very difficult topic. The videos may be gone from YouTube, but you can be sure they're going to still be on the Internet somewhere and easily reached by anyone who wants to see them. With Windows 7 selling very well, Microsoft's first quarter earnings beat the expectations of analysts. Earnings were $5.41 billion. That equates to $0.62 per share for stockholders. Purchases of software used in the home continue to be depressed, but companies have finally started upgrading systems after being on the sidelines for many quarters. Business sales were largely responsible for the earnings boost in the first quarter. And those earnings were more than $500 million ahead of estimates. A Bloomberg survey of analysts had pegged the expected earnings at $4.8 billion. For the second quarter, analysts are predicting sales of $19 billion for Microsoft. Google would really like to eat Microsoft's lunch and has now filed suit against the federal government claiming that contract specifications favor Microsoft over Google. The Interior Department needs to replace an older email system and it plans to upgrade its existing Microsoft products. That's when Google stepped in. According to the lawsuit, the Interior Department said it would not consider software from any vendor except Microsoft. Google wants the department to consider its Internet-based email service for Interior's 88,000 employees. But Microsoft's Outlook, email, task manager, and calendar software, combined with the company's Exchange server products, essentially own this market sector. 
Google says its Internet-based approach is better because the company or agency that uses Google's products doesn't need to install and operate its own servers. Instead, those functions are outsourced. So far, Google's attempts to derail Microsoft in the office have been largely ineffective. After listening to Google's presentation, the state of California selected Microsoft as the supplier of email services for its 200,000 employees. Sensing a pro-Microsoft bias in the bidding process, Google actually declined to even submit a bid. So maybe Google will find the path easier in federal court. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.